Today we are continuing in our series of messages entitled Sanctuary Salvation and Our Savior. And Psalm 77:13 says, Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary and in the New Testament. The way that Jesus was introduced was as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only way to understand this introduction of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist is through the lens of the sanctuary. And because the Jews were using a different hermeneutic, they were using a different interpretive key, not from the sanctuary, but from popular culture, they missed the Son of God. They misinterpreted God in the flesh. We come to the New Testament, and in the book of Hebrews, we have another way of viewing Jesus after he went to heaven in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So the interpretive key of the sanctuary John uses to define the mission of Jesus as the lamb, and then Paul uses the interpretive key of the sanctuary to define Jesus or to describe Jesus' work as our high priest even in the heavenly sanctuary. In other words, the sanctuary is still a relevant interpretive key for understanding Christ after he is risen and gone to heaven. And then we have the book Great Controversy, page 423. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. So here it is. John uses the sanctuary to interpret Jesus' work on earth up until the time he went to heaven. Paul uses the sanctuary as the interpretive key to understanding Christ after he went to heaven as our high priest. And here in the book Great Controversy, the great discovery of Seventh-day Adventists is using the sanctuary as the interpretive key to understand Christ's work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. The sanctuary message, the sanctuary interpretive key, is uniquely Seventh-day Adventist. Amen? There are other denominations that believe in the Sabbath. There are other denominations that believe in the state of the dead, but the sanctuary message and using the sanctuary as the interpretive key is what makes us uniquely Seventh-day Adventists. And we are following in the lineage of John the Baptist, in the lineage of Paul, we are using the sanctuary as our reference point for understanding the work of Christ. Now, let me give you a little tip. If you hear something and it sounds good, Put it to the litmus test of the sanctuary. If it contradicts the sanctuary message, it is a false gospel. It is not a biblical gospel. There are many philosophies and theologies that are out there, and there's one for everyone. It's like Baskin Robbins, 31 flavors. 
It's tailor-made for every individual, and it's just a little bit off. Sometimes I've listened to a message or a presentation, and I say, it sounds so good, but there's something that's a little bit off, and I take it to the framework of the sanctuary, and I see, oh, it doesn't fit. See, the Jews believed in the sanctuary. They would die for the sanctuary, but they had limited the sanctuary to just a doctrine and not as an interpretive key for understanding the work of Christ. There's a fundamental difference between the two. And as Seventh-day Adventists, we need to be careful not to minimize the sanctuary to just a doctrine, but to an interpretive key for understanding the work of Christ, past, present, and future. For illustration, I have a map here. These things are very helpful. Some people are orientationally challenged, and it takes skill to understand a map. First of all, you need to know what the map is of. Important 101. You're in a mall and you get lost, you look for a map, okay? And, and it says, you are here. Praise God for that. X, that's the first thing I look for at the mall. I'm like, where am I? Look for the you are here. There I am. And then I go to the key. You following me? The key helps interpret the map. Now, what if I was in Paris and I was lost and someone gave me a map of London? Except it says Paris on the top of it. Through that lens of the map of London, you try to navigate Paris. And that is what people are doing today. God gives us the map of the sanctuary, and we say, you know what? I want a different map. I don't want this map. I want to use a popular map from culture that meets our needs in a unique way that sounds good and it's being replaced by different ideas and philosophies and that's exactly what happened with the Jews and we need to be careful that we're not doing the same thing. Everyone has their own guru, their person that they follow today. But we need to make sure that we're following a biblical theology. Are you willing to entrust your eternal salvation to a man? to a man's spin on the Bible, to a man's interpretation of Scripture, we need to go to Scripture for ourselves and see whether these things are true. So the sanctuary is the key. It is the, the lens through which we need to understand the work of Christ. And this is from Fernando Canali, a professor emeritus of theology at Andrews Theological Seminary. And he says, leaders, administrators, pastors, and scholars should be going back to Scripture and using the sanctuary doctrine as the hermeneutical key to understand the complete and harmonious system of biblical truth. The hermeneutical key, simply put, that is the interpretive key for understanding Scripture. This is a biblical concept. John used it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Paul used it, he is our high priest in heaven. Seventh-day Adventists, we used it to understand Christ's work for us right now in the most holy place. It is impossible to understand the work and ministry of Jesus Christ apart from the heavenly sanctuary. Now here is a bird's eye view of the sanctuary. And there are three different compartments in the sanctuary. You have the courtyard, 
You have the holy place and the most holy place. There is movement in the sanctuary. God's goal is to get you from outside the sanctuary into the courtyard, into the most holy place. Some people get so, you know, when I first heard about the sanctuary, it's so confusing, all these symbols, colors, and, you know, it's, it's overwhelming. But this is very simple. It's like kindergarten, elementary. God gave us the blueprint. And here in the Holy of Holies, is the Ark of the Covenant, and that represents the throne room of God, that's the presence of God, and this is where Adam and Eve were before the fall, face-to-face communion with God, conversation, communion, eyeball to eyeball. That must have been an enlightening conversation every single day. Can you imagine having a conversation with God? That's where Adam and Eve were. After sin, we ended up outside. And God's plan of salvation is to bring us back. Very simple. That's a sanctuary message. Eden was lost. God is going to restore Eden again. Now let's go back to Eden. Before we do that, look at the book Education. I was reading this last night before I went to bed. If you want a profound book on education, read this book, especially the first three chapters. Education, page 15 and 16. Listen to these words to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul that the divine purpose of his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. So the plan of salvation is to bring us back. Eden lost, Eden restored, and this is found in the sanctuary. Now, let's look at what happened when Eden was lost. Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and suddenly they noticed, it's kind of chilly here. And the Bible says that they noticed that they were naked. Now, the book Patriarchs and Prophets points out that they had a robe of light that was around them. When they ate of that fruit, the lights went out, and they covered themselves with fig leaves. Notice what instantly happens when you sin. There is shame. Isn't that true? Have you ever sinned? You ever made a mistake? You ever done something wrong? What's the emotional, psychological thing that happens? Shame. They covered themselves with fig leaves. This is what we try to do to compensate because we can't look at ourselves. So, so there is this covering. And notice what God did in the book of Genesis. He gave them coats of skin. Now, Dr. Richard Davison, who's Old Testament professor at Andrews Theological Seminary, points out that this, when you study the Hebrew and do exegesis of the text, this implies a sacrifice. If it's coats of skin, notice the first thing that God did. They notice their nakedness, and they cover themselves, and God says, look, that's not going to do. He says, I'm going to give you something. He clothes them. He covers them. But that covering required a sacrifice. They are led out of Eden, and notice the Bible says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, God placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth. Notice that the entrance to Eden was on what side? It was on the east side. Fascinating. We'll come back to that in a moment. So on the east side was the entrance to Eden, and there were cherubim that were there. This is sanctuary language. Cherubim are hovering over the Shekinah glory in the sanctuary. 
There's a gate on the east side, and when you study the Hebrew word for flaming, this flaming has implications and is used other times in the Bible to refer to the presence and the Shekinah glory of God. Cherubim flaming east side, and here it is in the book Patriarchs and Prophets. At the cherubim garden gate, guarded gate of paradise, the divine glory was revealed. The Shekinah glory was revealed at the guarded gate. Hither came Adam and his sons to worship God at the cherubim guarded gate of paradise. The glory of God was revealed. And hither came the first worshipers. Here their altars were reared and their offerings presented. It was here that Cain and Abel had brought their sacrifices and God had condescended to communicate with them. Fascinating. When you look at the, the, the book of Genesis and, and do further analysis of the text, and it indicates that this place, the east side of the Garden of Eden, where the cherubim were, was the place where Cain and Abel also came, and Adam came with his family to present their offerings to God. This was the sanctuary prior to the flood. East side, the glory of God was revealed, and notice, she says, God condescended to communicate with man. Adam and Eve would come to the garden gate to commune with God and offer their sacrifices. The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve came, their sons came to gave, give their offerings before God, and here is the first conflict on worship that is told and is indicated that this conflict will happen again in the end of time. It's going to be all about worship. Cain and Abel, worship, Abel's sacrifice is accepted, Cain's is not. Cain kills Abel. Then God has a conversation with Cain. Do you remember what he said? And this is from the New American Standard Bible, Genesis 4, 17. This is God talking to Cain. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. When I first read this, I thought sin was metaphorically like crouching there ready to pounce on you. And I said, this is such a strange verse. Like, what is this talking about? When you look at the word sin there, it can also be translated sin offering in the Hebrew. And for whatever reason, the Bible translators translated this sin. Now, what is it that crouches? It's an animal that crouches. And uh, this is supported by some of the latest biblical research, this is Richard Davidson again, recent studies of this verse provide evidence from the original Hebrew that the word kahatat, which can either mean sin or sin offering, should be better translated as sin offering and not sin in this verse. And the word patak, door opening here, refers to the cherubim guarded door gate of paradise where sinful humans were to bring their sacrifices, paralleling the numerous uses of patak in the Torah over 40 times, describing the door of the tabernacle. 
What did God say to Cain? If you do not do well, if you sin, there is a sin offering that is there at the door. This was, this was redemptive language. There is a sin offering that is there at the door. Let's go back to this text and read it again. If you do not do well, sin offering is crouching at the door to Eden. There is provision for those that sin. Now let's go back to the Old Testament sanctuary that God instructed Moses to build. He gave him all of the blueprint. He told him exactly where things were to be. And notice which side is the gate on. The gate is on the east side. And notice the first article of furniture that you come to once you walk inside the gate is the altar of sacrifice. And is there a sin offering that is there? You better believe it. So the, the sanctuary is not a Moses thing. It predates Moses all the way back to the book of Genesis. And as we studied in our first presentation, the sanctuary existed even before sin as a place of doxology and worship. And it had the additional responsibilities of the plan of salvation after sin. So here is the altar of burnt offering, the altar of sacrifice. And this is where we come to Jesus just the way that we are. Amen? Walk in the door. Remember in our first presentation, we said that there was a veil over the sanctuary. It was not a deadbolted gate, praise God. And there is not an entrance fee. The veil indicates come in, but also come in with reverence and awe. So you enter through the veil into the courtyard, and there you accept Jesus as your Savior. Amen? He takes your sins... And then he covers you with his robe of righteousness, and you are saved. Amen. That's the first step. Um, I praise God that this article of furniture is not like way in there. Praise the Lord. You don't have to go through all of these other steps in order to get the assurance of salvation. You walk in the door, you accept Jesus as your Savior. He gives you the robe of righteousness, and you are saved. And if you were to die today, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Think about the thief on the cross. How far did he get? He got right there. He accepted Jesus as his Savior, and Jesus turned to him and said, Ten more steps, and you made it. No. He said, I can assure you today. I can give you the assurance today that you are saved. You are saved. This is, this is the way the gospel works. You can have the assurance of salvation today. You walk in the door, you accept Jesus as your Savior. He takes your sins. He gives you the robe of righteousness. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see your record, your past, your history. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his life. This is the beauty of the gospel. There's a lot of misunderstandings about the gospel, but if you use the lens of the sanctuary, you can understand that this is very simple if you use this framework. Now, I paid thousands of dollars to study historical theology. Thousands of dollars. I remember one time my professor got up front and said, for this class, 
that you are paying $7,000, and he didn't use those language, but uh, he said, for this class, all you're going to study is heresy. And I said, oh, great, wonderful. And I was tested over it, had to do uh, comprehensive examinations on, on heresy. And the thing I found where there were these brilliant theologians that had written for, 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 for thousands of years, each for a different era with a different flavor, and they're coming up with this incredible theology that if you just take the Bible away and you read it, it sounds good. But it's so confusing. And what the devil has done is taken something that is so basic and simple and confused it. And there is theology out there that says, look, there are things that you need to do to earn your salvation before you can have the assurance of salvation. You look at the sanctuary, this is nowhere in Scripture. Let's go to our study guides as we look at the beauty of what God does to us when we enter the sanctuary. This is in your bulletin as a study guide. I have all of the key texts here, or most of the key texts here. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my Lord, my soul shall be joyful in God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Just like Adam and Eve were covered, God covers us. The moment we walk in the sanctuary, we accept Jesus as our Savior, his robe of righteousness covers us. Do you have things in your life that you want no one to know about? Come on now. Do you have things in your history that you don't want exposed to the world? Do you have things in your history that you are plainly ashamed about? I do. And I praise the Lord that God is not in the business of exploiting our sins. He is in the business of covering your sins. Now, we are not to cover our sins. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, he that covereth his sins will not prosper. You bring your sins to Jesus, and he covers them with his robe. You accept him as your Savior, he covers you with his robe, and you are declared righteous. Next quotation in our study guide, Our High Calling, page 51. The sinner's defects are covered by the perfection and the fullness of the Lord, our righteousness. Praise God. Uh, notice that the Bible does not indicate that you are cleansed and then you're covered. The Bible indicates that you are covered first and then you're cleansed. He accepts you regardless of your present state and past history. That is the way that the gospel works. Now, then he takes you to the next article of furniture. Notice in the courtyard, we are covered at the altar and we are cleansed at the laver. This is the order 
that is in the sanctuary. We are covered at the altar. We are cleansed at the laver. So you come into the sanctuary. You're covered by the robe of righteousness. Then God says, look, I'm going to work in your life and wash you. I'm going to cleanse you. So God's not just about a covering. He says, look, I'll cover you. I accept you. Then I will wash you. I will cleanse you. And this is what we call justification. We are justified in the courtyard. Jesus has us come to him just the way that we are. We accept him as our savior. We are declared righteous. We are covered. Then he washes us. He takes us to the laver and cleanses, cleanses us. Now look at this in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. We know this by heart, many of us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, that's covering, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Covering and cleansing. This is the experience in the courtyard. We are covered and then we are cleansed. The book Steps to Christ, page 52. Jesus loves to have us come to him just as we are sinful, helpless, dependent. We may come with all our weakness, our folly, our sinfulness, and fall at his feet in penitence. It is his glory to encircle us in the arms of his love and to bind up our wounds and to cleanse us from all impurity. There you have it again. Covering, encircle us in the arms of his love, and to cleanse us from all impurity. This is the way that the gospel works. He covers and he cleanses. Last Sabbath, I gave the illustration. If you find a baby naked and dirty in Anchorage, what's the first thing you're going to do? Cover him. And then, by the grace of God, bring the baby home and give the baby a bath. God finds us naked, just like Adam and Eve. He covers us. And then he goes through the cleansing process. That's the way the gospel works. What is justification? Justification takes place in the courtyard. It is pardon, forgiveness, the imputed righteousness of Christ, what Jesus does for you, the objective gospel, Christ's robe of covering, and God's declaration. That is what justification is. Faith I live by Page 111, this is in your study guide. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man what it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I want to go through some points here, two points of what justification is not. We've just looked at what justification is. It's covering, it's cleansing. Here's what justification is not. Number one, justification is not based on human merit. Justification is not based on human merit. What does that mean? It simply means that nothing you can do can earn your justification. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, 
not of works, lest anyone should boast. Justification cannot be bought, and here I have a picture of Pilate's staircase in Rome, and about 500 years ago, a, a monk by the name of Martin Luther was climbing this very staircase, trying to earn his salvation, and he heard the words, the just shall live by faith, that thundered through his consciousness, and he stood up, and the Reformation was born in his own heart. This is the, the, the mantra of the Reformation and what it means to be Protestant, that you can't earn your salvation, you can't buy it. And every false religion out there has this idea that I need to do something, I need to earn my salvation, I need to pay for it. And some people think that Ellen White is a legalist that she believes in righteousness by works. But I want to give you a few quotations here that indicate quite the contrary. This is from 1888 Materials, page 811. There is nothing, there is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Praise God. Praise God. Um, 1888 Materials, page 816, if you would gather together everything that is good and holy and noble and lovely in man and then present the subject to the angels of God as acting a part in the salvation of the human soul or in merit, the proposition would be rejected as treason. I move on. Gospel Workers, page 103. The thought that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, not because of any merit on our part, but as a free gift from God, is a precious thought. The enemy of God and man is not willing that this truth should be clearly presented, for he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. If he can control the mind so that doubt and unbelief and darkness shall compose the experience of those who claim to be the children of God, he can overcome them with them temptation. So it's very clear from just a, a sampling a few of these statements that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, contrary to popular belief, does not believe in righteousness by works or righteousness by diet, or righteousness by veganism. Those all have a place in the Christian experience, and we'll be discussing that in a future presentation, but none of those earn our salvation. Are you following me? I have been in certain communities for the past few years of my ministry where if you eat something or do not eat something, you're esteemed more righteous than someone else. Righteousness by veganism or righteousness by eating something and eating a not, not, not another thing. Now, I am all for the health message, but you don't cash in on your salvation. You don't show your vegan card at the gate. God says, you earned it. Come on in. And sometimes... We, we can get these things messed up. You know, you know um, 
coming to Alaska has been a transformative experience in more ways than one, and one of them was, was the birth of our son. We weren't planning on having children, but the Lord had other plans. Amen, you know? And, and when we had our son, um, I, I still remember the moment that he was born. And there was just this love that I felt for my boy that I never thought I could feel. There is nothing today that would probably break my heart more than if my son was trying to earn my love. I would break my heart. There's nothing my son can do to make him love, to make me love him more. Nothing. I mean, there's certain behaviors that will break my heart. But his behavior doesn't change my love for him. Amen? I'm a sinner. I'm a frail, sinful human being. What about God? What about God? I mean, does God on a whole other level loves you more than you can ever imagine? The, the human analogy is, is only an analogy. It breaks down because God is on a whole other level. And there is nothing that you can do that will make him love you more. Amen? And I know we, we believe it here, but do we believe it here? And I think emotionally, um, we, we just can't process that idea because we just, we, we can't believe it. Justification is not based on the way that I feel. Point number two. Um, this is a, an important concept here. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, the just shall live by faith. And uh, feelings and emotions come and feelings and emotions go. When I accepted Christ as my personal savior, still remembered like it was yesterday. Um, I knelt down in the hills of Pennsylvania, gave my heart to Jesus. And for me, there was a lot of emotion. I got up the next day, and it was like, whew, whoa. I mean, I felt like a new creature in Jesus. The emotions were all there. I had one of those conversion experiences that were just like, oh, you know. And I went back to school that year, and everyone knew it, that there was a, there was a change. So what happened to David? I lost friends. I mean, it, it, was, it was one of those dramatic conversions. And the book Steps to Christ brings out that just because you don't have that type of conversion doesn't mean you're not converted. Everyone's conversion is different. But mind you, even with my emotional like, oh, experience, as I began to live my Christian experience more, this, the startling realization came in that every day was not like that. <laughs> every day was not like coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and be like, whoa, I'm just feeling all this emotion and, and euphoria. There were days that I did not feel 
all of those warm fuzzies. Mind you, there were weeks when I did not feel those emotions. Emotions come, emotions go. I mean, sometimes it's physical. Sometimes you just didn't get enough sleep the night before. Sometimes it's nutritional. Sometimes in Alaska, it's seasonal. <laughs> come on now. This winter was a struggle. And, and, and so, so the just shall live by faith. Emotions come and emotions go. But because those emotions are not there does not mean that God's vision of you has changed. You know, um, this is from I Hark, Our, Our High Calling, page 119. Faith is not a happy flight of feeling. It is simply taking God at his word, believing that he will fulfill his promises because he has said he would. Do you always feel the emotions about your wife or your husband? Come on now. Our high calling, page 120, faith and feeling are as distinct as from the other, each other as the east is from the west. Faith is not dependent on feeling. Daily, we should dedicate ourselves to God and believe that Christ understands and accepts the sacrifice without examining ourselves to see if we have the degree of feeling that we think we should corresponding with our faith. As we come to our last quotation in your study guide, Faith I Live By, page 113, those who accept of Christ are looked upon by God, not as they are in Adam, but as they are in Jesus Christ. As the sons and daughters of God, we are not to be anxious about what Christ and God think of us, praise his name, but about what God thinks of Christ, our substitute. Praise his name. So don't be anxious about what God thinks of us. The important thing is what God thinks of Christ. As we wrap up here this morning, the story in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus is coming down from the mount, having given the greatest sermon ever preached, the Beatitudes, he comes down from the mountain and the Bible says the whole crowd was following him. He comes down and then there comes a leper to Jesus. He comes to Jesus and the whole crowd parts and uh, there is Jesus and the leper that are standing there. And the way that Jesus treats this leper is a picture of how God engages us. This leper, an outcast of society, and the Bible tells us that Jesus touches him. You can imagine a gasp that goes through the, con through the, through the congregation, the people that have just listened to the sermon. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him and then he says, be clean. Notice what Jesus did. Two steps. Touches him. That touch meant everything to that leper. It was acceptance. And then he said, be clean. This is the courtyard experience. Jesus accepts us and then cleanses us. Jesus did not say, be clean, and then I'll touch you. Jesus said, I'll touch you. You're accepted. Be clean. Barry heads with me. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for the love of God. We thank you for your covering and your cleansing. And Lord, I know that there's someone here today that feels their need of covering and cleansing. There's someone here today that has something that is burdening their heart and their soul. And Father, you are inviting them into the courtyard to get the covering and cleansing that only comes through Jesus Christ. And I'm wondering if there's someone here today that wants to say, Lord, I want to be covered. I want to be cleansed. There's something in my life that I need cleansing and covering from. Save me. Would you just raise your hand today with every head bowed and eyes closed and say, Lord, I need that covering and cleansing for something in my life today. Father, you see these hands, these hands that are being raised. It's a powerful choice. And Lord, I thank you that this is all you need for you to cover and to cleanse. Thank you that you have already done this. We praise your name for the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary, on our behalf. We ask these things in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.